welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. All right. Well, good morning. If you open your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. Well, this chapter is one that is really an evidence of the inspiration of Scripture, inspiration by God. In other words, God breathed out. Um, and the reason I say that is that if it had been written by man, or according to man's own wisdom, if Moses had written just what he thought was best, then this wouldn't have been included. Or if it had been included, it would have been um, uh, written a little more favorably for, uh, for Jacob and his family. Uh, and it's uh, one of those uh, chapters that... Um, you would just tend to skip over if you were picking out a chapter to uh, preach from or to teach from. Th this one wouldn't be one you would normally go and pick out. But that's uh, the beauty of preaching through a book that uh, you, you deal with everything that God has given us in His Word. And He's uh, given this to us, and it has some important warnings for us uh, today as the church as we've seen in uh, Jacob, in his life, his family, he's been sowing some things that have been very harmful to his family. Uh, think about think back a few chapters to um, uh, his multiple wives and all the conflict there. Think about his um, his favoritism of of one wife over another, which resulted in favoritism of some children over others, in ranking kind of according to to his um, uh, favoritism, uh, and then and then the lifelong problem of his deception, uh, trickery, that kind of thing. And we saw in chapter thirty-two, though, that God brought this man Jacob to a, a crisis point in his life, so that he he turns from himself and self-dependence to trusting God. But now here in chapter thirty-four, we see Jacob and his family at their very worst. So, so what has happened? What has happened in just this? What seemed like just a you know, a few, a few verses, a chapter uh, in, in our account was, as Pastor Daniel pointed out last week, Jacob, uh, in his obedience towards God had not been complete. Instead of, as soon, he, as, soon as he left Isaac, there were the confrontation with him and, and being reconciled. Instead of moving directly on to Bethel, where we would have expected him to return and uh, to the place where he had made this vow to God, uh, we see him settling down in this area called Succoth, which is still in that eastern side of the Jordan uh, River in, the, in the, uh, the valley region there. And then he builds a house there. 
And so he's, he's settled into that area. And then uh, some years later, after he gets back into Canaan, he, he, he moves into this area, the outskirts of the city of Shechem. And, and we, read, we read there and learned that he built an altar in worship to God. And if you'd asked Jacob at that time, Jacob, uh, are you obeying God? And he probably would have looked at you rather strange and say, yes, I'm obeying God. I, I'm, I'm back in the land. And I even built an altar to worship God and declared there my allegiance to Him. And then we might ask, but Jacob, why the delay in getting back to Bethel? We don't know exactly the time frame, but it's been as much as eight to ten years from the time that he left his brother Esau. And we could suggest, we don't know exactly what was in his mind, but we could su suggest some possible reasons for his his dragging his feet, as we would say, his delay in uh, getting back. Maybe he just liked that region of the, the valley region there with... Um, with the green grass and, uh, and the water. And he possibly felt that he could uh, increase his flocks. He could enrich himself, expand livestock in that region. I, I mean, compared to the mountainous region of Bethel, it's much better grazing for the, the livestock. Or maybe he just wasn't quite ready to get back to Bethel. Uh, he had vowed to give a tenth of, um, of all that God blessed him with. I mean, it's easy to, to make vows when you don't have anything of, of, of giving, but uh, now he's become wealthy. Uh, maybe he just feels safer there. He's, um, he, he's far away from, uh, from Esau. They're living in the, the northern portion of uh, of the land and so maybe he likes uh, likes that better we we're not sure uh one author uh, bob uh, deffenbach makes this observation jacob was never safer than he was in those times of most evident danger and jacob was never in greater danger than at those times when he felt most secure that seems that's like a riddle almost, isn't it? Because on to say the reason for this is quite simple. We are most inclined to trust in God and obey Him when we sense that we are in grave danger and that our only hope is in God alone to save us. End of quote. Well, that's certainly certainly true for us today as well. When we are aware of our need, we're more inclined to look to God, to trust Him, to obey Him. And there are times in our lives when we, when we feel like we're quite safe, things going well, uh, we, we don't have any major problems, and it's easy to become self-sufficient, isn't it? Easy to become a bit lazy in our devotion to God. Well, for whatever reasons, uh, for uh, Jacob's delay in uh, coming back, his obedience was only partial. And partial obedience is disobedience, right? It's disobedience. 
And as we think about that reality, we need to examine our own hearts and our own lives and think, is God pleased with my obedience? Is my obedience complete? Am I devoted to him? Or am I just doing enough to get by? Am I doing enough to convince myself that I'm where I'm supposed to be or doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Well, Jacob has been sowing seeds that's going to produce a crop of great tragedy for him and for his family. Let's read together in chapter 34. And I'm just going to read right through just to give you the, a sense of, of what's happening in this section. In chapter 34, Genesis 34, beginning verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriage with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you ask to me, I will give. Sorry, whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will I agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughter to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, but he delighted because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor, Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, 
These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trading it, uh, trade in it, for, uh, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughter as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of his city and on the third day when they were sore two of the sons of Jacob Simeon and Levi Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males and killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the, the city because they had defiled their sister. And they took their, their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field and their wealth and all their little ones and their wives and all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perserites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Well, Jacob, at the end of this account, must be thinking to himself, what a mess. How did I ever get in such a situation? How did this ever happen? Well, later when Moses first writes this account, he is leading the children of Israel, preparing them to come back into this land of promise. And they, uh, as the children of Israel, needed to hear this account. They needed to be warned of the danger that lay ahead of them. And although our circumstances are certainly different, we as the people of God also need to hear this warning because we also face a similar kind of danger. And that danger is that we as the people of God would be assimilated into the world. And so that brings me to the main thought I want you to think about this morning. And that is the reality that we are set apart for God. This becomes a major message of God to his people. Uh, as you think back to the giving of the law, much of that is teaching the children of Israel that they are to be a holy people. They are to be set apart for God. And that message is repeated over and over again of God's intention for them. Jacob and his family they're chosen by God. They're His people. They are to bear His name before the nations. They were called out of the world and were set apart unto God. But Jacob is not thinking this way. He doesn't see the danger of settling down on the outskirts of Shechem. When we read that account, I thought of Lot and how the Bible says 
that he went down into this, this valley region when he separated from, uh, from Abraham. In verse, uh, Genesis 13, verse 12 says, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. In this, we see Jacob moving and settling there in the outskirts of the city of Shechem, this pagan pagan city. Well, because we're set apart for God, we as God's people must actively separate from the world. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to isolate ourselves from, from all unbelievers, but it does mean that there's some people that we should not be close to, that we shouldn't be best friends with. Uh, there's places where we shouldn't go. There's things we shouldn't do. And we, we should be choosing friends and close people to be close to us who will lift us up, who will draw us closer to God and not pull us down. As believers, we must be aware of the danger of the world and not think that we are strong enough to not be pulled down into its vortex. Here in verse 1, Genesis 34, we see Dinah. She, it says that she went out to see the women of the land. And that doesn't sound like a, a big problem. It's, it sounds rather innocent that she went out to see the women of the land. But we have to remember that this is a thoroughly pagan city, a thoroughly pagan people. And it would have been strange for her to go along. She's a, she's a young, uh, a young lady, probably, probably somewhere around 16, 17. And, uh, for her to go into this city by herself would, would have not been the norm. It's likely that, that Leah, her mother didn't know that she had gone. And it's also very likely that, uh, Jacob had not warned her, his family about the danger of this city and the need to be separate. He's, he's already brought them into relation by making deals, buying land. And um, he's camping there on the doorstep of the city. And when this young prince Shechem sees Dinah and, and takes her and violates her, he then decides that he wants her to be his wife. And he uh, tells his father that he wants him to arrange the marriage. Very kind of abruptly, get her for me. You get the idea that uh, Shechem is used to getting what he wants. And his father's a powerful man. He can just throw some money at whatever problems that he's created. And we see when they come to talk to Jacob, there is no mention of any kind of remorse or sorrow for what it, what they've done it's as if it's no problem we'll just we'll just give you a big gift and uh and we'll just pay it pay the problem away and we see hamor in in verse 9 and 10 say make marriage with us give your give your daughters to us take our daughters to yourselves you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you dwell and trade in it and get property in it 
I believe that's Jacob's intention, the part about, especially the part about dwelling there and trading there and getting property. In other words, increasing his wealth. And it was an interesting offer. It may have made good business sense, but it was in direct opposition to what God had planned for Jacob and his family. One of the things that stands out in this encounter is that Jacob is very passive. He's very quiet. He's not acting like a father. And he's certainly not acting like a representative of God in his will. He, he remains silent and allows his older sons to negotiate and to talk to, to Shechem and his, his father. And I believe that this indifferent attitude of Jacob is fueling the anger that his older sons are feeling. And you got to think about the context of going back to how he's given preferential treatment uh, to, um, to Joseph and to Rebecca and not to Leah. And, um, and he doesn't seem to be too angry or worried. He doesn't say anything about the violation of their brother, of their daughter, uh, sorry, of their sister. They're the older, older sons. Uh, full sons of um, of Dinah, and when this offer is made, you you can see them huddling together and coming up with this plan. Uh, they've ar- they probably already had intentions of getting revenge when they first heard about what happened, and uh, they see these men coming with their offer of money and uh, making a deal, becoming one people, and they. They quickly come up with a plan of deception and revenge and murder. And we, uh, we see that uh, uh, they concoct a, a plan to get revenge through deception. And it really brings me to the second thing I want us to, to think about. And that is because we're set apart for God... We must pursue godliness or holiness. And because if you're not pursuing godliness, then you will by default uh, live ungodly according to the flesh. So if you're not pursuing God and following after him, you will default to what the flesh wants, what you, according to your own will, will choose and won't. And so we see these sons now taking what is given by God as holy and they make it profane. Profane is, 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 is a concept that's later repeated. It's that which is common or, or unholy. It's, it's, just, it's just for um, everyday use. God wants his people to see that we are a holy people. We're not just to take our lives and just use them for whatever, as if we don't belong to God. And so they take something very holy, which is circumcision, and they make it profane. They, they would have all been circumcised. They would have understood what this sign was, a sign of the covenant relationship with God. But by their actions we see that it didn't really mean anything to them. 
It was, it was a sign that God had given to set them apart from other peoples, to remind them that they belonged to God and that God had entered into a covenant with them and made promises unto them. It was very unique. But they use it in their anger to plot and commit murder. Well, it doesn't seem that Jacob was aware of their murderous plot, but he's willing to go along with the idea of, of, of them being circumcised and becoming one people together with them. And this is in exact opposition of what the symbol of circumcision was meant to, 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 to indicate and show, that they were a special people belonging to God. And he was willing to intermarry with them and become one people with these pagan Canaanites. And so we see that, that Jacob is not in the place and not thinking biblically. He's not thinking as God had instructed and, and, and taught. Later in Leviticus, we see God's design as it's spelled out in Leviticus 20 and many other places. In verse 26, he says, you shall, be a holy, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That was his plan. And that's how he's been leading Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in this land as sojourners, uh, traveling through it as strangers and pilgrims. Because God wanted them to be a unique people, a holy people, set apart from Him. And this, this action that's instigated by His sons would destroy that plan of God. And God uses this same kind of language for us, the church. If you'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to read a few verses there that uh, challenge us as believers today. In 2, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that certainly is applicable to marriage, but it's, it's, it applies to other areas of our life where we yoke ourselves together with, with unbelievers, where we, we become uh, in a, get in a situation where we're, we're bound to them, and uh, we are influenced by them in such a way that uh, we, we turn away from God or we disobey God. And we take what is holy and we make it profane. <clears throat> Notice <clears throat> from verse uh, 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, reference to Satan? <clears throat> or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Speaking of, we as individual believers are dwelt by the Spirit of God, and we collectively as the church are the, temp we are the temple of God, the dwelling of place of God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from the midst of, 
midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the language of the Old Testament. He spoke to the nation of Israel that they would be a special people for him and he would be a father to them. And he carries this over into the New Testament, speaking to the church in the same way that we are to belong to the Lord and we are a special people belonging to the Lord. And he goes on. We see it in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's two things there in that last verse he admonished us to. And the first is, as we apply this, this truth, we should examine our hearts. Examine your heart and let God show you if there's any areas where you need to separate from the world. And then seek to be cleansed from any defilements from the world. Just living in the world, we tend to be defiled by the world. It's inescapable. We, we're impacted, we're influenced by the world all around us. And Paul writes in, in, in Romans 12 uh, that we are to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Same, same truth. And the second part he says here in verse 1 in 2 Corinthians 7 is that we would pursue holiness, that we would pursue Christ. He says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That, that completion won't happen until we're with the Lord, until He comes back or He takes us to be with Him, but we're to pursue after that. We are to, he says, bringing it to completion in the fear of God. And so in other words, we are to continue pursuing Christ's likeness until we are with the Lord. <clears throat> There's one, one writer, uh, uh, J. Selhammer, in the uh, writing in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, wrote this. I think Moses included this chapter in all its repulsiveness to warn God's people of the danger of becoming assimilated with the world. The nation of Israel was about to go into the land of Cana. The greatest danger facing them was not fighting the giants in the land. It was the danger of being seduced into blending in with the Canaanites. And the same is true for us today. End of quote. This blending in, it's... Uh, is something that most of us want to do, isn't it? We, we want to blend in. We don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. I think that's only natural. And it's not always wrong to blend in. But we do have to examine our hearts and make sure that by our uh, actions, our words, our conduct, everything that we're doing, that we're not compromising the truth of who we are in Christ. And so we ask the question, we should be asking the question, am I representing Christ to those around me? Can I represent Christ with what I'm doing, with how I'm talking, with where I'm going? All of those questions we need to be evaluating and letting God evaluate and test our hearts. But to live this way means 
that we must value Christ and what he thinks more than what we think, more than we value ourselves. He must be first place in our hearts and in our minds. And you'll notice that Jacob is not doing this. He's concerned about himself. He's concerned about his safety. He's not thinking about what will please the Lord. Notice if you go back in Genesis 34, verse 30, Jacob confronts Simeon and Levi for what they've done. But you'll notice that he doesn't confront them as to their sin against God or their failure to obey God or to uh, allow God to take vengeance. Notice his emphasis. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perserites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And his his brothers, his sons say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? In other words, even after their murderous revenge, they are claiming the moral high ground. And the only reason they can do that is because Jacob has been focused on himself. He hasn't been living to please God and to honor God. And Jacob is left without anything to say. Jacob has been sowing his own will, his own wisdom, and his half-obedience. And he's He's now reaping. He's now reaping some of the consequences. But even in all of that, even in such a such a tragedy as this, such um, such a defilement, God is still pursuing Jacob in grace. We see in the very next verse, God says to Jacob, "Jacob, get up and go to Bethel." It's like he's saying. Jacob, what are you doing here? Get on your way to Bethel and there where you made the vow to me, uh, worship. And so God is coming again to Jacob in grace. And he does the same for us. Regardless of the failure of our past, regardless of our sin, God is a merciful God and a gracious God. And we as His children can come to Him and find forgiveness. We can find grace because of Christ. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. And in Him, there is forgiveness. One pastor, Stephen Cole, writes and gives us an application and a conclusion uh, as we think about how to apply this truth He writes, how do you fight the subtle yet aggressive danger of assimilation with the world, especially as it seeks to undermine your family life? And he gives gives three commitments that we can make will help us. First of all, he says, commit yourself to proper separation. We've talked a little bit about that. Uh, Seeking God's wisdom about how we should Uh, be set apart for God. 
And then he says, commit yourself to proper insulation. Insulation. And he means by that being insulated by the Word of God and a relationship with God that insulates us, the truth of God, the, the fellowship with God insulates us from the, 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 the fallen sinfulness of the world around us and the depravity of the world around us. It insulates us. Uh, Jesus said in John 17, verse 15 and 17, His intercessory prayer to the Father for us, He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then thirdly, he says, commit yourself to proper intention or purpose. And he means by that the purpose or intention of living our lives to honor Christ and to making him known in the world. In other words, if it's our, as we interact with the world, if it's, if it's our intention to be a witness to the world, then we're, we're less likely to allow the world to, to impact us and to drag us down into the pit of darkness around us. And so intention helps us. Paul sums it up this way in Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever, uh, for, for whatever one sows, he, uh, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Well, Christ has died for us that we might be forgiven. We might have a relationship with him and he set us apart unto himself as his people and he rose again from the grave in victory that all who turn to him in faith can also live in that victory he has won the victory for us over the world the flesh and the devil and if we are willing and committed to walking with him then we are able to live in this victory day by day. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ who's come and paid the price for our sins, who's forgiven us, that we can know the grace of God in our lives, that we can know the power of God in our lives. And Father, regardless of our, our sin and failure of the past, we can, we can begin fresh and new today serving you and obeying you father we may have uh, consequences of our past sins as jacob did we may reap some things that we sowed but we can be forgiven we can have mercy we can have grace because of christ and i pray father that each of us would be committed today your children those that, that know you as Savior might be committed to that uh, today and each day. As we get up, we commit ourselves afresh and anew to living for you, to living as a people set apart unto God. We ask it and pray in Christ's name. Amen.